I'm Levi Warren, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part eight in the series, Hearing God. What does it mean for us to worship God? Is it simply the act of singing songs in church? Or is worship about relational connection between God and his people, about creating space for the Holy Spirit to speak to us and transform us? And full disclosure, Somehow in the wake of Josh's sabbatical, which is almost over, uh, as scheduling guest teachers, uh, the chaos of life, there was uh, yet again some miscommunication. So tonight, as we bring, as we bring our uh, series Hearing God to a close, I've got a great treat for y'all, Hearing God in Creation Part 3. Are you guys? No. No, we're not doing that. I'm just kidding. I prepared something. I'm glad that went over. We actually are nearing the end of this series, though. Uh, we have one final teaching tonight, and then next week we're um, going to be doing a night of worship and prayer and prophecy. It's kind of sort of a, a practicum to close out all the work we've been doing to learn how God speaks to us through the scriptures, through uh, the life and teachings of Jesus, through the activity of the Holy Spirit, and through the creation that's all around us. But before all that, tonight, I want to explore the idea of the Spirit speaking to us through worship. Are you guys up for that? Sweet. A few weeks ago, on a Wednesday night, I found myself driving down the freeway, crossing the interstate bridge and heading into North Portland. Uh, Tyson Kingray, sitting right there, ooh, he was sitting next to me, and we were making our way, you remember this, Tyson? Oh, we were making our way to a small concert venue discreetly tucked away in a quiet and unassuming neighborhood bordering the Cascade campus of Portland Community College. And, you know, Tyson and I have been in the same community for something close to seven years now, and we've learned over that time that we share some similarities in our musical tastes. So whether it's dream pop or psychedelic garage rock or noise punk, uh, we like to go to the occasional show together. Uh, On this particular night, though, we were making our way to experience what I would say is something a little more intense. And it's, uh, this band, and they've been dubbed this thing called Caveman Battle Doom. Um, it's a band called Conan. Uh, they're this extreme doom metal band from Liverpool, England. And it's pretty much what you'd expect from something described as Caveman Battle Doom. It's this ear-splittingly loud, tuned-down guitar riffage, thundering bass, pulverizing drums, Plenty of guttural growls and reverb-washed screams. Sounds like a good time, right? And we arrived at the venue just in time to catch the first opening band, and this one described as, no joke, Blackened Funeral Doom Metal. It's a thing, I guess. Look it up. Or not. Googler beware, just so you know. Uh, We stepped into the short line forming at the entrance, and as we did, the guy that was kind of half-heartedly checking IDs implored us to get inside quickly and shut the door because they needed to try and contain as much of the noise as possible. And I honestly cannot imagine uh, what it would be like to live in one of the many houses just barely spitting distance from this place. I mean, we were in a neighborhood. On the ground floor of the building, uh, we received our wrist stamps, and then we began following a few stragglers upstairs to the concert hall itself where the music was already in full swing. And as we ascended, the noise grew more and more intense until what I can only describe as 
the loudest concert experience of my life began, which honestly, I like to go to shows, and so I mean, it's, it's saying something. But, you know, what can you expect from a blackened funeral doom metal band who sings about cosmic horror and dystopian uh, themes about the world of capitalism? Now, for those who frequently go to shows like this, you know that the opening bands can be a good way to get introduced to new music, but really, everyone is there for the main act. And as the first two bands worked their way through their set list, the crowd slowly got denser, the energy in the room grew palpably in eager expectation, and finally, as Conan took the stage and blasted the notes of their first song, it struck me. I mean, not the song, but... This idea that there were elements all around me that looked like worship. As the band played, the crowd didn't just idly stand by. No, they mobbed their way toward the stage with fists lifted high. They screamed along to their favorite parts of their favorite songs. They headbanged and moshed. The sacred ritual, as it were, of the circle pit soon emerged. Anyone familiar with the circle pit? As what I can only call the congregants uh, dressed in their festal robes. That is, uh, band t-shirts, ripped jeans, and denim jackets adorned with an array of patches. They all joined the violent fray. And at one point, I swear, I even saw the elusive too much rock for one hand fist. Are you guys familiar? Lexi's familiar. It's that, too much rock for one hand. I didn't know people were actually using that one out in the wild, but I saw it. And all of these elements were kind of the liturgy, as it were, of the evening. I threw everyone, or everything going on around me, that is, I was struck by the sense of community that was created there. Here were a bunch of diverse strangers all gathered around a central idea, caveman battle doom. And it led to worship. Was this a type of worship I was witnessing? I mean, maybe not in the strict sense that anyone thought this band or its members were some sort of deity, I know I didn't, at least. But then again, can we or do we ever worship something other than the transcendent? For Christians, do we ever find ourselves worshiping something or someone other than the one true creator God of the universe, Yahweh? And what does it even mean for us to worship God? Is it simply the act of ascribing glory and honor to God, especially through songs? If that's the case, and worship always involves us making noise directed towards God, how is it that we're supposed to hear him speaking to us when we worship? And yeah, a big aspect of worship is about us ascribing honor and glory to God, and often that looks like declaring with our words through song or poetry or prayer the things that we know to be true about God, about his character, his worth, his power, his creativity, and at first, I mean, that might sound kind of like this clinical or dry idea, you know, just blandly stating facts about God and his character. But really, uh, this is about intimacy and connection. And it's not just about us making noise towards God. Worship is far from one-sided. Rather, it has this element of relational exchange between us and God. So think of it this way. How many of you have ever written a poem or a song for someone you've loved? You, uh, one person, oh, two people are willing to admit it, okay. Even if it was years ago during the days of your youthful naivete. Look, 
I know I have, and at the risk of embarrassment, would you guys like me to read you some of the lyrics from a song I wrote many years ago? The subject of the song shall, of course, remain anonymous in case this person ever hears this teaching. And, uh, okay, the chorus of this, this song went like this. It said, for Meadows, I'm not going to swing it, sing it. I'm just going to say the lyrics. I'm not going to swing it either. <laughs> for meadow sweet, for meadow grass, for eyes of meadow green, I sat beneath those oaken trees to catch my breath and dream. For acorn hair and quiet stairs, for taking to the skies, I climbed up in those oaken trees to see if I could fly. Yikes. Oh, wow, you guys like it? I'll be selling CDs after the gathering. <laughs> you may have caught, uh, because it wasn't really that subtle, that the subject of the song was a green-eyed girl with brown hair. That would be the extent of the identity. Or here's another, even more sappy example from another song I wrote, and I'll let you guys decide whether it's about the same girl or not. I never saw a star shine, heard a beating heart, until your beauty woke me, bringing out the morning sun. Now I see everything I need. Everything I need is right here with me. Oh, goodness. All right. Unfortunately, I could go on, but I won't. And here's the point. The intent of a love song, at least oftentimes, is for that song to be shared with the object or the person of its affection. And in doing so, the song invites response. It cultivates relational connection and intimacy it is hopefully not one-sided. Now, please hear me on this. I'm not saying that we should worship God, you know, just through sappy love songs or something like that. But poetry and songs about God are found all over Scripture, and they're used as a means for the people of God to worship their Creator. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible filled with these types of songs, and it's called Psalms. The Psalms were like the prayer and the hymnal books of the Israelites wrapped into one. The Psalms were meditated on, recited, and sung as a way to direct the mind of the worshiper onto the one being worshipped, and as a way to build a relational intimacy between God and his beloved. By worshiping through the Psalms, the Israelites were speaking to God, but also attuning their ears and their hearts to hear from God. Pastor and author Jim Thompson says that the book of Psalms, as we have it, was meant to compel individual and corporate attentiveness to God. It wants us to sing our way into loyalty, wisdom, self-control, repentance, community, mission, love of neighbor, and love of God. And this should be the case for us precisely because it was the case for Israel. And Psalm 146 is a great example. In fact, um, could we all right, right now read this psalm out loud together. Are you up for that? Yeah. Uh, let's even stand together as a gesture of reverence for uh, reading the authoritative word of God. So let's read Psalm 146 out loud together. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and that very day their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. 
He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. These words are inspired by God. Thanks. You guys can have a seat. Now that, I would argue, is a lot more powerful than a goofy song about a girl with green eyes. And in just a little while, at the, at the uh, end of our gathering, we're going to be singing a song together whose chorus echoes the opening words of that psalm. It says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will sing of your great love forever. Praise the Lord evermore. I will sing of your great love forever. But it's not just in the psalms where songs of worship are lifted up to the ears of God. I mean, they're all over the pages of Scripture from the beginning to end. The first official recorded song is uh, found all the way back in Exodus, actually, when Moses and the Israelites sing as a response to how God redeemed them from their slavery to the Egyptians. Uh, Turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Exodus 15. And you all know the story. As the army of Pharaoh pursued the Israelites, God parted the waters of the Red Sea so that his people could cross over in safety, and their enemies were consumed by the flood as the waters crashed back in upon themselves. And in response, Moses and the Israelites cried out, starting in verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. And the song of Moses goes on. And it's a song about redemption. It's a song that declares the mighty works of God his good character, and how he is worthy to be praised. But it's also a song that communicates to the people of God just how loved they are by their father. It communicates to the people of God that Yahweh will do whatever it takes to rescue his people and to create an avenue for intimacy and connection with them. And we can look at examples all through the pages of Scripture, but I want to draw our attention to what uh, many scholars say is the final recorded song in the Bible, and it's all the way in the book of Revelation. So turn in your Bibles all the way to the other end to Revelation 15. And in this passage, uh, John, the author of the book, is recounting this amazing vision he's received from God. And it's fascinating what he says, starting in verse 2. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass, glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. So here he's describing followers of Jesus who stand victorious over evil. And he goes on. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant. Who? Anybody. Moses. Thank you. Moses, that's right. And of the Lamb. John is comparing this heavenly worship song to the song that Moses and the Israelites sang after their redemption at the Red Sea. And it goes like this. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. 
Now, for those paying really close attention, you may notice that while this is called the Song of Moses, it's not actually quoting the words of Exodus 15. Instead, it's inspired by a handful of various psalms and writings of the prophets. But I, I still love that this is called not only the Song of God's Servant Moses, but also the Song of the Lamb, because it's the theme, it's the heart behind this song that's important. It's also a song of redemption and, and relational intimacy. And again, notice it's not just the song of Moses, but it's the song of the Lamb. There's this weird sort of paradox that springs to my mind when I hear that. So this is the song of Moses because it echoes how Moses and the people of God are singing praises to Yahweh. So in the same way, if it's the song of the Lamb, is that because the Lamb is also singing a song of worship to God? So now, ultimate Sunday school answer here. You guys can answer. Who is the lamb? Oh, yeah, man. I was going to be like in a panic if nobody got that one right. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, of course, is the word made flesh. He is the lamb. And remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus? He said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was God in the flesh, the lamb through which we, have, uh, we find redemption. He's the perfect representation of God, and he is worthy of all praise and honor. And Jesus was a man. He was a human being empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And as a human, he worshiped Yahweh, the one true creator God of the entire universe. When asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus quoted the Shema from Deuteronomy. He said, the most important command is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the central tenet or backbone of Jewish worship. And Jesus said that all of the law and the prophets, or his way of referencing the totality of the scriptures, he said it, it hangs on this command, and the one like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. This was a way of understanding that the whole being of a person everything that they are and do, even the way that they love other people, could be directed in worship towards God. N.T. Wright suggested that this actually is the central reason God gave his people the book of Psalms. He wrote that God gives us these poems, the Psalms, as a gift, in order that through our praying and singing them, he may give us as a gift to the world. We are called to be living, breathing, praying, singing poems. And that's just how Jesus lived. Empowered by the Spirit, he gave everything over in worship to God in his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he became the ultimate gift for the world. His whole life was given for the sake of God's kingdom and to bring about redemption for all of those who would call on his name and be saved. The ultimate act of love for his neighbors. So back to the song of the Lamb. Yes, Jesus stands with his brothers and sisters, and he sings the praises of God. He is a living, breathing, praying, singing poem. And the song of the Lamb is the song of worship that we direct toward our Redeemer, Jesus the Messiah. Again, John in his revelation, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. 
Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The song of redemption is spread all over the pages of scripture from beginning to end, but I'm sure you've picked up on it by now, that worship is not merely about singing songs. The fundamental nature of worship is to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is with everything that we are and with everything we do. Paul wrote in his letter to the Colossians, he said, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Or in Corinthians, he said, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Anglican priest and Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple once said that to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. Or put more simply, as professor and author Dr. James Smith says, the goal of Christian worship is a renewal of the mandate and creation to be remade in God's image and then sent as his image bearers to and for the world. But here's the essential thing. None of this is possible for us without the Holy Spirit. True, authentic, transformative worship is only possible because we have been empowered by the indwelling presence of the Spirit of Jesus. But the Spirit wasn't always available to the people of God like he is now. And that means worship for the ancient Israelites looked a lot different than it does for us. It used to be that to meet with God and to participate in worship, one had to go to a very specific place and follow very specific rules and regulations. At least that was the case after the fall when sin and brokenness entered the world and relational intimacy uh, between humans and God was fractured. In the very beginning, way back in the garden, we're told that Adam and Eve, the first humans, walked with God in the cool of the day. They were naked and unashamed and nothing separated them from God. They had unfettered, unrestricted access to worship and closeness with Yahweh. But you guys know the story. Humans decided to seize autonomy They chose to define good and evil for themselves. Sin and death entered the world and the humans were expelled from the garden and from the presence of God. Still, ever since that moment, God has been working to create ways to restore his connection with humanity, ways to create relational intimacy with the children that he loves. We can trace God's efforts all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, um, but here's just a very, very quick overview. So it was Moses who after leading the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt, that met God on Mount Sinai. But it was such an intense experience that the rest of the Israelites were terrified of even the idea of meeting with God. They didn't want to do it. Next came the tabernacle. It was kind of this mobile space where God's spirit would uh, descend. It would fill the Holy of Holies and his presence would dwell amongst his people. But Even still, access was extremely limited and extremely dangerous. Only certain people at certain times of the year by following very strict worship rituals were allowed to experience the presence of God. 
And the mobile tabernacle was eventually replaced by the permanent temple after Israel had settled in the promised land. But the same restrictions still applied. Limited access to God and limited avenues for worship. And through all of this, Israel constantly rebelled against God. Despite his desire to restore connection, they chose to worship other gods, to pursue other loves, and eventually God's presence and glory left the temple altogether. You can read all about that in the prophetic book of Ezekiel. Uh, The people of Israel were eventually invaded, taken captive, and led into exile, and the temple, uh, the place where God's presence once dwelled, was destroyed. And even years later, when a remnant of people were able to return to the land of Israel and managed to rebuild the temple, the presence of God never returned. But thankfully, that's not where the story ended. All throughout Israel's continuous rebellion and eventual exile, the prophets offered the hope of a coming day when the Messiah would arrive, and with him would come the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the people of God. Joel famously prophesied about this happening on what he called the day of the Lord. Through him, God said, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Or through the prophet Ezekiel, God said, I will no longer hide my face from them. For I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. And this through Isaiah. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. And all these prophecies find their fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. In the opening stories of the gospel accounts, when Jesus is baptized by John in the waters of the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit descends on him and rests on him like a dove. It's the scene that's reminiscent of the opening lines of Genesis when the Spirit hovers over the waters and God speaks into existence all of creation. So in Jesus, a new creation is being initiated. And in Jesus, uh, and Jesus himself spoke of this new coming reality about the Spirit being poured out on the people of God and what it would mean for worship. When Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman at the well, their talk turned to worship. And the Gospel of John uh, in chapter 4 recounts the story like this. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. And by that she means Mount Gerizim, which is this location of worship that God had established way back in Deuteronomy. She goes on, But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem, meaning the temple. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now Come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. 
A time is coming, Jesus said, when worship will no longer be restricted by location and ritual. Instead, worship will be available to all people at all times, in all locations, because the very presence of God will be with his people by the power of his spirit. And that's exactly what we see on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. After Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, the Holy Spirit is poured out on his disciples and the church is born. And the Spirit is no longer confined to a mountain or a tabernacle or a temple made by human hands. Now the Spirit, or now the people of God are the temple of the Spirit. He dwells among us. We have become the sacred space where God dwells. Our very bodies, minds, souls, hearts, we are the temple of God. Individually, yes, but also corporately. As Paul wrote in Ephesians, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now is the day when we can, as Jesus said, worship in spirit and in truth. Richard Foster, in his book, The Celebration of Discipline, said that the central reality of worship is found in spirit and truth. It is kindled within us only when the Spirit of God touches human spirit. And Dr. Smith wrote about this idea that worship is an invitation for us to participate in the life of the triune God. That is, in worship, the Spirit meets, nourishes, transforms, and empowers us. That worship is a uniquely intense sight of the Spirit's transformative presence. This is one way that the Spirit speaks to us through worship. It's the Spirit of God within us who empowers us to worship. It's the Spirit who is creating the space within us for relational intimacy with God. Worship is not just us speaking at God. It involves us listening to God. It involves us being changed and shaped by the very presence of God within us. Again, from Foster, just as worship begins in holy expectancy... It, it ends in holy obedience. If worship does not propel us into greater obedience, it has not been worship. To stand before the Holy One of eternity is to change. Resentments cannot be held with the same tenacity when we enter his gracious light. As Jesus says, we need to leave our gift at the altar and go set the matter straight. In worship, an increased power steals its way into the heart, uh, into the heart sanctuary. An increased compassion grows in the soul. To worship is to change. To worship is to change. And this is not something we do alone. Remember, not only are we individually, you know, little temples of the Spirit, or what the New Testament writers refer to as the body of Christ. We are this together. And when we speak uh, the truth and love over one another, as the Apostle Paul said, and when each part does its work, we are built up into a mature body that is held together and supported by the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Now, you might be asking yourself, what does all of this have to do with worship, really? Well, our unity as the body of Christ is central to the way that we worship and the way that we hear from God in worship. 
Paul in Ephesians exhorted the people of Jesus to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or, or elsewhere in Colossians, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Through worship, God is speaking to us and shaping us. He is recalibrating our hearts so that they are aimed at him. But the greatest commandment was not just for us to love God, it was also for us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in worship, gathered as a family, the Spirit wants to speak through us to our brothers and sisters around us. And one final time from Richard Foster, he says that in worship, we must have a willingness to be gathered in the power of the Lord. That is, as an individual, I must learn to let go of my agenda, of my concern, of my being blessed, of my hearing the word of God. The language of the gathered fellowship is not I, but we. There is a submission of the ways of, to the ways of God. There is a submission to one another in the Christian fellowship. There is a desire for God's life to rise up in the group, not just within the individual. If you are praying for a manifestation of the spiritual gifts, it does not have to come upon you, but can come upon anybody and upon the group as a whole if that pleases God. Become of one mind, of one accord. When we are gathered together in fellowship, uh, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, with an eager expectation that God will show up and speak, he does. And he does this in so many wonderful ways. And yes, we often think about singing as the primary way in which we corporately worship. We spent time earlier this evening doing that already. And honestly, I think there's a, a really good reason why this is one of our main outlets Singing together creates uh, space for kind of this practical representation of this unity that we experience through the Spirit. We all lift our voices, uh, often in a single melody, and we sing the same lyrics. Uh, you know, maybe a variety of vocal harmonies or instruments join in as kind of these unique and separate parts of the body being knit together into a single beautiful portrait of Jesus. But remember that the essence of worship is loving God with every part of who we are and being transformed into the type of people who love our neighbor as ourselves. And so, so many of the elements of our weekly gatherings help us to do that. They are practices that sort of till the soil of our hearts so that through the Spirit, God can bring about growth and transformation in us. When we read a prayer of confession together or when we stretch out our hands or cheer as a blessing is said over the children, we are worshiping God and being shaped by the Spirit. When we recite a creed or we lift our voices to read a psalm together, when we join our hearts to pray for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven, we are worshiping and being shaped. The Spirit is speaking to us. And when we take communion together, it's like this miniature moment where we get to remember all of God's activity throughout the whole course of redemptive history. 
when we pause to think about how every aspect of the story of the scriptures is summed up and fulfilled in King Jesus. A moment where we join in with the song of Moses from Exodus, we have been redeemed, rescued from slavery. And when we look forward to the song of the Lamb from Revelation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We eat the bread and drink the cup as those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And when the Spirit speaks to us words of knowledge or wisdom, of prophecy, and we get to communicate those things to our brothers and sisters around us, when we get to communicate the life and the blessing that God wants to speak over his people, the encouragement and the hope that that brings. All of these are elements of our worship. And through worship, we are being invited into the biblical story, into God's plan for redemption, and we're being taught how to love. We're being taught how to love the world as Jesus loved the world, and we're being taught to love each other as he loved us. So the Spirit is speaking. Do we have ears to listen? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.